record in the mornings but here we, we are we don't it is a sunday morning <laughs> what is it that i just ate something oh you ate a um fig and goat cheese galette a galette a galette what's a galette like so it's basically a that pie definition. that's not yeah. in a pie tin it's like a free form it's like a rustic hmm. wow well yeah. it was it was quite good folks um, and it wasn't a week old <laughs> no it was it was fresh it was delicious it got me ready to do a podcast with my good friend Laura. Um, but more important than that, um, we made a list. <laughs> yeah, we did. How many years have we been doing this? What, three? Almost three, now? yeah. Um, but we did it, folks. Not uh, only did we, we make a list, yeah. we became finalists. Yeah, no, we are, we're like, um, if you did not see um, Print Run, we are very excited to say has been placed on the finalist um, shortlist for the Digital Book World Awards um, pu- publishing. You know, they got awards for all kinds of different stuff. And Our publishing. category is best use of podcast and yeah. publishing. Yeah, so that's um, we're really excited about that. I guess they announce the award next month um, and who knows what will happen. I almost see like I'm, I'm just happy to be nominated. Isn't that what you're supposed to say? Right? <laughs> yes, like, that is. I mean, obviously we should and I, win. No, and I think that would that, be great. And that is true, though. I mean, I'm. Um, it's very exciting, and I'm glad that, you know, it's nice to be recognized in that way. But it's just fun that you know that kind of stuff. And we said this online too, but we'll say it here. Like, you don't have things like that happen for you, great or small, unless a lot of enthusiastic people are talking about your show. And in that way, I'm really grateful to everyone who listens to this because one thing we have, you know, I get on like the Print Run Twitter account and it's just all day. It's just notifications of people saying, hey, no, check out this show, you know, look at this, you know, listen to these guys. And that is the sort of like support that you would dream about like people having, you know, and we're really we're really grateful for it. And obviously we're excited to be on this list. I hope that we obviously I hope that we win. But um, it's just fun to it's just fun to be a part of it. Um, did you look at any of not even just in our category? Did you see any of our um, fellow shortlisters for yeah, some of the other? Yeah, they stuff? have like no business putting us on there with all of these like legitimate business. Yeah, there's people. a lot of legitimate business people. You know, people who don't just make things up on the fly like we do. <laughs> um, we're also um, Alexa is up for an award. Did you see that? Yeah, uh, it's just <laughs> us and Alexa. And so is so is the Mueller report. So we are amongst all of our good friends um, <laughs> for um, at this award. So who knows? I'm picturing like a table at like the awards banquet where it's like you and me, and then like next to us is an Alexa, and then and, there's a copy of the like, redacted Mueller yeah, report. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's good. Um, that so would anyway. be a great table. <laughs> uh, thanks so much to Digital Book World for uh, putting us on their list. We are very appreciative. Um, yeah. But with that, we should say, welcome to this episode of Print Run. The award-nominated podcast. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning, winning, winning, man, I jinxed it, award. You're um, putting it out there. You're using the (laughs) secret. like. Uh, Yeah, exactly. The award-nominated podcast, Print Run. Uh, My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. 
Um, it's Sunday morning. We are, we've got our coffee. We've got our microphones. We're ready to do this thing. It's a little sleepier in here than it often is um, when we record. But today we are going to be discussing a couple different issues that relate to like publisher behavior as, as it interacts with reader behavior. And I'm excited to talk about that. But before we get to any of it, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, welcome. So if uh, there are people here who are listening, um, temporarily so it is august 18th and if you're listening this week um note that we will still have three special episodes coming to you this week um or this month this i month, should say this this month, this, yeah. this month I'm, I'm going to new york for the writer's digest conference this week so that's that's you why are? they're a little behind i didn't know that you're doing that yeah that's gonna be great yeah I'm Isn't, hanging out with Eric Smith, the other Eric, Eric. Eric Smith's going to be there, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. He just DM'd me. Wow, um, wow. Sorry, well, I'm hanging out with the other Eric. Sorry that everyone's hanging out in the DMs with me. I'll just be over here with my <laughs> torta or whatever it is you referred the to. Galette. The galette. The galette. But anyway, so I'm going <laughs> to be um, away from Eric, which means that we cannot record. Um, but we, don't worry, we still have been building our special episodes available on Patreon. So we've got our query show coming which is where we critique real queries um in real time submitted mm-hmm. by real authors like mm-hmm. you and then we also have our um first pages show where we do the same thing but with your first page instead of your queries yep. and then we have a third flex episode we have had somebody write in with a request mm-hmm. for what that topic is um we haven't 100 percent decided on if we're fully going to do that but you know what like if you were like you know I really want to hear about this. Just send it to send your suggestion to us because this flex episode is to give you whatever you need or want. The Patreon's for you folks. Like yeah. you're paying for it. The query show and the first page of show are, you know, they're listener focused, right? Like right. they are and they're writer focused. Like if you want us to talk about something, tell us and we'll yeah. design a show around so it. For so for all of that to get in contact with us or to submit your show or your your query or your first page for the show, send it to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So the first place we wanted to start um, this week, and again, like our loose theme, you know, we sort of put together the episodes and then decide kind of how they, or we decide the topics and then kind of join them in our heads, you know, and <laughs> the thing that kind of joins all the stuff we want to talk about this week is the way publishers behave, the way readers behave, and the way those two things often come to shape each other in sometimes some very strange ways, right? And the first place we wanted to start today um, comes from a, we kind of drew inspiration from this thread that the uh, best-selling writer Barry Liga uh, put up uh, last, I guess a couple weeks ago now, about pre-orders. Yep. And we want to talk about pre-orders because I think anyone who is interested in, especially writers, right? Like writers, I feel like, and anyone in publishing, the pre-order has started to take on increasing significance, right? Yes. Like now that... Um, people are buying books online, all that kind of stuff. Like you see it, as, and I guess especially in relation to so many big, notable, successful pre-order campaigns, right? Like you can think of someone like, like the most notable example, obviously, I think is Shea Serrano, who is able to kind of get on and all of his tweeting, all that kind of stuff. It's designed around getting people to pre-order the book, right? And right. he's got this thing, and you know, you see it with other fiction authors too, and you kind of see as soon as like a book gets like what a month or so out as soon Mm -hmm. as that really as soon as the pre-sale button becomes available people start rabidly campaigning 
for or publishers are rapidly campaigning pre-order for pre-order my book. Like, I'll send you a bookmark. Right, exactly. The pre- yeah. the it feels as though the entirety of not the entire well maybe the entirety. I guess we're going to get into that, but like so much of an emphasis in whether a book gets promoted or not right now is designed around the pre-order. So let's pause there for a second and talk about why pre-orders are important. And I think that there's fundamentally kind of two sides there. Mm -hmm. One, um, if a book has a lot of pre-orders, what it does is it mitigates a lot of the risk for a bookseller and the publisher. You know, if there's a lot of pre-orders, they are they have more confidence in how many books they're going to print. Right. um, How they're going to have their sales reps try mm-hmm. to like sell them to bookstores yep. um and so because one thing you don't want is to have that like you know convince bookstores all over the country to take a ton of books and then have them not sell and then they have to send them back and right. like the publisher pays for that right yep. so that is that's the first thing that's like a kind of taking a loosey-goosey sort of uncertain industry and making it more certain. It's a planning tool, right? Right, like it's you, a planning you, tool. You use the pre-order numbers, and especially as you emphasize them further in this way, like if more and more, if you take like the percentage of a total copy sold of a book, that percentage, like the part of that pie that's pre-orders is growing, right? Like right. books more and more are selling before they published than right. ever before. And a lot of that is because of technology. Right. It, it has a lot to do with social media, et cetera. But so that's, that's one reason that right. pre-orders are taking a lot of significance. The second one is a lot more having to do with marketing. And that's kind of where it becomes like a snake eating its own tail, right? Yeah. So the reason that people started pushing pre-orders to begin with um, once the technology became available is because when there are a lot of pre-orders, those get rolled into the first week sales of a project. So there's kind of this this idea that's fairly recent, which is if a book doesn't make it onto the bestseller list in the first week, given that it's actually the sales of all of the pre-orders plus the first week sales, mm-hmm. if it doesn't make it onto the list that week, that book is not going to make it. So that's well. So make the make the list. Make the yeah. list. And so that's I think a really interesting concept with a lot of big ramifications mm-hmm. that kind of need unpacking because it is like you're right. Like just and just as like a basic refresher here. When people order, uh, when people pre-order a book, you know, months ahead of time, however long ahead of time they're able to do it, all of those sales in terms of like tracking and for like the New York Times bestseller list and stuff, mm-hmm. all of those sales end up counting as first week sales. Yes. And so you can see how because you have more time, like if you have months to hype up a book and get people to buy within a giant window, there's a lot of reason to believe that your book's best week could be that first charted week because it's including months and months and months of sales and so like what you're saying it sort of creates this dynamic where you you get the sense that the game is sort of won and lost Mm -hmm. like on day one so compare that to the concept that we've talked about a lot on this show about how real books become like successful books become that way through kind of a grassroots yeah. sort of experience. Like yeah. books um, books can sell a lot in the first week because of publicity. Mm-hmm. Look at the Mueller report, right? <laughs> like they can sell a lot. Or like look I at Fire look and at Fury, right? Yeah. So those, those books had a lot of hype 
but then they didn't have any sort of grassroots lasting power. So they're kind of gone, (laughs) right? They are. I mean, I think, like, it's... And what you're seeing happen in a way that's... We're going to get to reader behavior in a minute, but in terms of publisher behavior, a strange thing is that because the emphasis is sliding more and more to what happens before the book publishes, the, the arc of, like publisher support you know like promotional Mm -hmm. stuff whether the book is getting you know pitched you know publicity wise with a certain amount of fervor whether you know whether the coverage like you're seeing now um you know reviews and stuff are like you know roundups and things you know they account for books mostly now that aren't out yet you know like Mm -hmm. it's very i feel like most book coverage now at least it feels this way this probably isn't true but you'll there's a certain feeling one gets that there's so much coverage now of stuff you can't actually have yet. <laughs> yes. And you would never like or you would very rarely find, you know, a roundup of something of like a book that you can go that you can like go get that's been sitting on a shelf for, mm-hmm. for months and months and now, you know, someone is telling you to go read it. Like that the slide of the whole industry, you know, promotional ecosystem has moved earlier in time. Right. 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 And so then Look at that in terms of like, okay, let's pretend I'm a debut author and we're running a very like basic kind of modest publicity, Mm -hmm. you know, pre-order sort of campaign for my debut book. Right. And the pre-order numbers aren't what was expected for my genre or for, you know, whatever. And so then what might happen is if my pre-order numbers aren't quite as good. And somebody in that same release season, their numbers are a little bit better. Mm -hmm. What might happen is that the publicity and marketing departments at this publisher might start pulling publicity away from me as sort of like a sunken cost Mm -hmm. fallacy sort of situation and give it instead to the author who's already performing a little bit better than expected. Before so, anyone's even had a chance to read the damn book. anybody's yeah. read the book. And so, like, that's so true and it's so crazy because now we're kind of in a place where the pre-order is the most important thing. You mm-hmm. know, you want this numbers because it's going to help you decide how many or it's going to help a bookstore decide how many they're going to buy so mm-hmm. as to avoid returns it's going to just help you the publisher decide how like whether or not you're really going to hit it and like one thing that happens that you just described that I would that I think feels like one of the fundamental pieces of backward logic in this industry as opposed to any other industry that like sells things <laughs> um what you just described makes total sense with regard to what I've seen and heard in publishing, which is that if you've got two authors who look like, you know, you've, they're both kind of sitting there, you're trying to decide who gets what, you're going to divert resources to the the one who's already showing some signs of heat, you know, like you're going to try to build on success that already exists. Right. Rather than looking at that same situation and saying, well, hey, this is kind of lagging, or this isn't as good. Maybe if we pump that one pump up, that one up, we can get it. Like, but that isn't what happens. What happens is people double down on success because, and this is like one of my. I mean, we. I feel like we say this in some form every week, but like, there's just not a lot of confidence that people know how to sell books. You know, I mean, I mean that on a <laughs> nobody knows le- how. No, I mean on a fundamental <laughs> level, though, it's it's true. Like, people have a really difficult time figuring out like how. If you were confident that people were going to buy books for through 
a normal life cycle mm -hmm. of a product. You wouldn't worry so much about like you would have it be able to sit in a store and you would know that um you know you could reach the people consistently without having to rely on a supercharged pre-order campaign that then completely disappears, right? Like it's sort of a situation where the only thing we know how to do anymore is have huge pre-order campaigns and after that who knows? You know, we'll see what happens. But it's just strange to me because you were throwing, like, the window for when a book is, like, front list and viable and something that someone is actively trying to sell, it's sliding forward and in, in earlier and earlier and earlier. And, like, it used to be, you know, the big thing was year one sales, right? Right. Or, like, really, really, like, a long time ago, it used to be like, well, how is the book going to sell over the first few years of its life? You know, and then it became, well, how's it going to do in year one? And now it's good. Now we're kind of like at this point where it's like, is it on the bestseller list in the first, you know, 72 <laughs> hours? And if not, how do we, you know, how are we going to respond to that? It's like, it's just, it's tricky to me. And it, it feeds into that larger trend of like boom and bust publishing, right? Because like what you just described, when you're taking, when you're throwing money after, after good, as opposed to trying to build up something that's lagging. You get that stratification we're talking about, right? Where like some books do really well and other ones immediately get forgotten. There's not like the mid list, the you know, the sort of middle promoted stuff that just sort of sells consistently and sits. Because the mid list isn't being invested in anymore, that's why it's shrinking. Yeah. Um and, and it gets and it becomes this very like weird like it, it, it shifts the mindset in a really interesting way. So like one one thing that I as I was thinking about this topic, I was reminded of a book that I read and read fairly recently and loved very deeply um, that was mentioned in um, Publishers Marketplace, which is the big like trade website and, and news, mm -hmm. you know, like format for for publishing Um they send out this email every every weekday called Publishers Lunch, right? And it basically is like, you know, this person's retiring, this person got, mm -hmm. you know, this distribution is changing, this person got promoted, et cetera. Um, but they have a particular little, little like, tidbit in there um, about how the Wall Street Journal magazine talked about Red, White, and Royal Blue, which mm -hmm. is the book that I read and loved, and you should all read it, by Casey McQuiston, um, as the unlikely book of the summer. And then the, the magazine called it a juggernaut novel that spread to every beach blanket and publishers marketplace. <laughs> So like that was that was yeah. the that was the non-trade publisher. That was like the non-trade um publication that said that. And then there there was a point in the industry-wide like daily yeah. recap yeah. that said that might be an overstatement. And then it, it went on to say that um the sales over 12 weeks were approximately 27,500 copies. Hmm. So there's kind of this idea, like, even though it is consistently still rolling and, and this book is so much of so this this book, just to give you guys an idea, because it's so good. Um, it is like a combination of like 10 things I hate about you and um, and kind of like uh, the Princess Diaries and like a political sort of yeah. like no, anyway. The, the son of the president of the United States falls in love with the Prince of England hmm. 
And yeah, it's like wow. a it's a nice like alternate history. So instead of Trump being elected, this woman is elected. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's incredible. But anyway, um, this book is still going. Like people are still writing think pieces about it. People are wrecking it all over the place. If you're on book Twitter at all, you've seen it everywhere. Yeah. If you walk into a bookstore, it's everywhere. And so just kind of like. Because of this this boom and bust mentality, there's even this idea of this book that is a debut and it's a gay romance and it's doing phenomenally well. Like what gay romance has sold 27,000 copies in 12 weeks? And mm. there's kind of just this idea that even that happens. It's like, mm, it's not it's not really, yeah. you know, that successful. And yeah, they put it in a cra- trade publication crazy. that yeah. it's not that successful. That's yeah. And that's the thing, right? It kind of warps. Like, so these these bits of logic, you know, these new pieces of conventional thinking, you know, things have to happen within this time frame or a book is, quote, unquote, a failure or isn't. Not that it's ever that black and white, but, like, it's not living up to whatever we kind of perceived it to be. Like, it ends up affecting, like, what you just described, like, a trade magazine looking at, a book that has done that well. An amazing grassroots saying, sort of growth. Mm, no, that that just it's simply it's not taking the meter for us. That's the sort of logic that then like trickles into um, bookstore decisions. Mm-hmm. It trickles into acquisitions decisions. It's like and this is what I mean. Like it's just so I just want to get back to the idea that like a book and this is something that really, you know, bookstores can have the most influence over because they're the ones who actually know how to sell books um <laughs> out like, of everybody they're the only truly, ones no but no i'm 100 percent on that like it's the idea that a book could consistently sell over time based on word of mouth that happens not just on twitter in the first few you know in the weeks leading up to publication like i think that that's really important and i think that we have to it's the same it's the same thing with anything we talk about like we have to be willing to fight for that model even if it like it's not immediate it doesn't immediately work and might even come against what we know to work better mm-hmm. like there has to, people have to make the decision that actually what will be long term more healthy is if we were better at promoting books you know through the first 6 months you know or even. the first year which again like i said for, i even as i said it aloud i'm like man i have been you know, we, you and I are not old. Like, I, we've been in publishing, you know what, I graduated college in 2012 and got my first publishing job there. And I can remember in 2012 being, like, um, and f- feeling like year one was, like, a book was hot for 12 months, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you were actively working. Like, And now, even like, like, I just caught myself saying, like, six months, because that feels almost absurd, too. And it's just, it's crazy. Things are shrinking. It is worth mentioning that when we talk about Amazon and about how Amazon came to control this industry, um, Jeff Bezos picked books because they don't go bad. Like, <laughs> like that, that's yeah. wow. you know, yeah, like right. we as like as in publishing easy the industry, to ship and they don't spoil. Yeah. They're yep. easy to ship and they don't spoil. And so like the, that, that like, that longevity style thinking is mm-hmm. what made Amazon the behemoth that it is today, which yeah. is completely the opposite of how publishers are now treating it. And it's really kind of, I know this is oversimplifying it, but it's really easy to look at that and go, 
oh, okay, I see how in a lot of ways then Amazon is really truly understanding what this product is in a way that publishers are not. They, def- they definitely do. I would say, I mean, this is, again, a whole other topic, but we and we don't have to get into it now because we get into it seemingly every week. But um, to Amazon's credit, they understand, like, book behavior. Like, they get how to move books better than any publisher does. The problem is they kind of have turned it into you know a product that doesn't actually like they've made it such that it doesn't actually work for any of the people producing the thing but they definitely know like they understand selling books they understand reader behavior in a way that is cold and algorithmic and all this kind of stuff but like there is something to be said for the idea that um you know they can look at something that you and i i think would have trouble seeing without as without being these precious little pieces of art as you know, a toaster that they can figure out how to, you know, sell units of. But there's and, even something there about the precious little pieces of art yeah. that I feel like the the industry itself is yeah, is totally. getting rid of. Because what happens when you are pre-ordering a book? You're pre-ordering a book because, you know, you saw this cool thing on Twitter yeah. or because, you know, you read the blurb and it sounds interesting. But, like, what that is missing is, like, we are strip like we're we're stripping the qualitative experience out of like the reading experience out of the marketing of the book so like before you know where you were maybe able to go into the bookstore and you know read the first chapter and see if you liked it or you know somebody was like oh yeah this one this book felt like a warm hug or something like that um now really all you have to go off of is is hype and blurbs and marketing material Mm -hmm. we're kind of taking away the experiential side of book selling because you can't do that in a pre-order yeah so it's worth to kind of transition out of this it's worth looking at the relationship between the entity selling the product you know the publisher and the one um the one buying it you know the reader and in any kind of relationship like that these two parties are studying each other and trying to react to one another, right? And I just know, like, personally, as I have watched the industry more and more and more emphasize what's happening beforehand, right? Like, using the buzz of a new thing coming out soon mm-hmm. as, you know, a means of making the book seem shiny and exciting. You know, the the, the sense of anticipation, right? Like, in, right now, the thing that is moving books and driving conversation is anticipation. Right. And... To me, like I know that if I, as a re- forget being in publishing for a second, I know that as a reader, I almost, if I don't buy a book in the first week, I don't know that I'm ever that I'll ever buy it. Really? At this point, which okay, so to clarify, like you push against that instinct because, you know, I all the things we just talked about. Plus, you know, I you know you keep track of things. You can, can't possibly get everything you want to read you know, when you want to get it and stuff. So you do end up buying things later than that, of course. But that feeling is one that I have to push back on. You know, as someone Mm. who tries to, like, track and work with contemporary fiction, like, I know that I buy things pre-order or I, you know, like, there's the table at the indie that I go to, you know, the new stuff. Like, I pretty much spend my entire time there. Mm. And I have to, like, push against that habit, you know, because, but it's a habit that, the reason I bring it up is because that's a habit that, publishing is trying to instill in me right you know like it wants you to focus on the brand new 
And by the time something isn't brand new, publishing is done talking about it. Mm. And what ends up happening, like the way these kind of cycles work, is because they then see that I'm responding to the way they've set up the publishing promotional cycle to emphasize things that are coming out as opposed to things that are already out. Like, they look at me behaving that way or anyone else behaving that way and say, oh, see, readers actually are this way. We better do it more. <laughs> and suddenly we're in this cycle, right? Like, And it just gets back to this idea, and it's the one we're going to talk about on this other thing in a second. Like, We just need publishers to think of readers as readers and not as – like, just give them more credit. You know, it's, I feel like we say it every this week. This isn't like, a new iPhone. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's, we need, um, readers will buy books over time if you let them, you know, and if you show them that that is the model you're trying to value, you know. And, I, I get most of my books, actually, like, as a very strong library yeah, user. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listen to books. Yep. And then if I really love them, I'll buy the print edition. So like I typically like especially when you take in take into account the windowing that we talked about in Mm -hmm. last week's episode, Mm -hmm. what that means is I might not get access to an to a audiobook um for well, audiobooks aren't doing the windowing thing, but who knows? So like I might not get access to a book for six months after it comes out. So you're in a different and then yeah, yeah, but the thing is is like I'm forgotten about. I was about to say, I don't think publishing knows or plans for you to exist. No. Like, I think that that habit, which is a far healthier one than the one I just described. And, <laughs> and it's one that's far more organic and far more, I think, I think more accurate to how people actually engage with books. Like what you've described, mm-hmm. you know, that feels like how people actually read. Like what I do is nuts and is driven entirely by just trying to like understand like what contemporary fiction is in a way that has eroded my basic reading habits and tastes in a way <laughs> that we can get into some of the You point. also love but, a good hardcover. Yeah. But so it's you're right. You're you're totally you're totally right. You're forgotten about mm-hmm. as a sort of book buyer profile. No one ever tries to market to my reading habits, which is something I've also been very aware of in other aspects yeah. of of the of the books that I read and the books that I've worked in. Um, there's been something that's been growing for a while, um, but has only really started to like take off in the last six months or to a year, um, which is like pushing books to be crossovers without like deeply, deeply, um, like telling everybody that this is a crossover. Okay, so let's talk what tell me what what you're defining as a crossover. Yeah, so crossover um is a term that's really used particularly within like a specific category or market if the book has an ability to reach readers who don't read that category. So you hear a lot of like a YA crossover, which is a book that is young adult but can very easily be shelved and read by adults without them going, oh, I'm reading a young adult yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, a lot of, like, you know, we've we've talked over the past several years on this podcast about um, speculative fiction crossovers. So I, you know, I'm a really big fan of Station Eleven, mm-hmm. which is a science fiction book, mm-hmm. but was published by a 
you know, more mainstream mainstream yep. publisher and had science fiction on the back of the book. The author hated it. The yep. author said that it wasn't science fiction. <laughs> it was speculative fiction. Um, all of which could be totally beside the point all if of we which... actually talked about books the way readers talk about books <laughs> as opposed to, yeah. Right. But so that book is very, like, that book could be considered a, a crossover, right? Because right. there, technically, it is science fiction, but it wasn't read or consumed or talked about that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I am currently in the middle of Circe by Madeline Miller, also definitely a crossover. You Between know, what? Um, well, it is. I mean, it's a mythology yeah. book. It's a retelling of of Circe, um, Circe's story, mm-hmm. um, but from the Odyssey. But it, and you know, and it's and it's it was published as a as a as a literary a piece of literary fiction. You know, a very like yeah. center like piece of trade fiction and um i guess you could say that it crosses over into fantasy Mm -hmm. (laughs) um but so all of this has me thinking um in very kind of like confusing and frustrating circles um because i as an agent and as a reader have always really really struggled with people looking at like science fiction or fantasy or romance and not immediately assuming it's one thing. And um, the 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 publishing of crossovers and to great success, like mm-hmm. all of the books I just mentioned, including from earlier in this conversation, Red, White and Royal Blue, mm-hmm. um, all of these books have had this immense success as being crossover books read by people of the genre, but also read by people outside of the genre. And like there's flexibility there um, yeah. in how people talk about it, depending on their own kind of personal reading, reading behaviors. Um, so where where I think I am I'm interested in kind of exploring and talking about today and also, you know, keeping my eye on is that more and more um, publishers are so deeply invested in having runaway hits like yeah. that and having those breakouts and having those crossovers. And I hear people talk about, oh, yeah, I want to cross. I would love to have something that crosses over. Well, so let's, and yet yeah. they won't fucking buy them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Right. And so actually, that's where I want to discuss. Yeah. Is like how publishers say they want this thing. And actually, what we should really get into here is is a crossover something that a reader creates or is it something that a publisher creates in terms of like the what you're describing which is that a book that reaches two audience two audiences you know like it's a it's a book that and i guess like even the act of like crossing over implies mm-hmm. i think that you started out positioning a book one way and it ended up crossing mm-hmm. into like there's a movement that happens that feels very organic and so in that way to me a crossover as describing is a function of readers behaving in a way that publishers didn't account for. Right. If that makes sense. Or and you know, and I and I do have to give a little bit of credit to publishers yeah. at this point because in the past six months, there especially with with romance, there has been a very big push to brand contemporary romance novels as crossing being able to cross over with general fiction or women's fiction. Mm-hmm. So you'll notice um, you'll notice the 
the the covers of of a lot of like successful romance books mm-hmm. you know i'm talking um the friend zone mm-hmm. um i'm talking um you know like red white and royal blue like you know all of those what you're able to do is if they have that sort of like bright cartoony sort of like fun not like yeah. deeply like sexual like fabio style a cover that suggests something other than a romance novel right yeah. then then there is the ability to cross it over and yet you know you get like like shitty publishers lunch articles about how it's like not really that successful yeah um yeah so I think publishers, I think at the very least, you know, as per usual, like romance and YA are very much leading the charge in this. Yeah. Um, they're very much given giving these books that already have that potential to reach multiple audiences. They're giving them marketing materials that allow it to be sort of self-selected by mm-hmm. the reader. Um, I guess for me, I just look at this stuff and think that like, again, it's just kind of, you know, there's such a dance between the people making the thing and the people reading the thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, to me, a crossover is something that happens. Like, a reader generates a crossover, right? right. Like, because it's... You can lay the groundwork as the like, publisher, but the reader decides. A book is... this is And this is actually, I think, the essence of my point here, is that a book is not a crossover book across genres or categories or readerships, whatever, however it is you're determining it. That's not something a publisher can decide for a book. Mm-hmm. It would like for it to be. You would say, you know, you can market it in two ways. You can do all this stuff, but that function happens based on reader behavior, right? Yeah. And it just it's clear to me again that, like, the answer to this and to many other problems is to let readers behave like readers. <laughs> to not, like, because one thing, you know, publishers, you know, throw up their hands and they wonder, well, why can't we get things to cross over? We'd really like stuff to. And so much of it is because of, like, you know, this sort of, like, category selling we do now where, like, a book, you know, if it's this kind of thing, it can only be sold in this kind of way to this specific sorts of people. And I just... The best know, YA books of the summer. Yeah, like, no, what about just the best books of the summer? The, exa- well, yeah. I mean, tr- truly, like, the category stuff, you know, the genre stuff as selling categories is c- undercutting the thing they're saying they want. Yeah. You know? And... And the same with the cycle we just talked about with the last thing, like publishing sections readers off into these ways. And then once they see that readers have been sectioned off in this way, they point at it and say, oh, look, readers are sectioned off. I guess we have to market to them in this way. Or As opposed does, to saying yeah. that they're that way because we told them to be that right. way. And if we just told them something else, they would do that. You know, It's just the same sort of like question of like who's doing what. And... Um, you know, like looping back to, uh, you know, the idea of like pre-orders and stuff. It's the same thing. Like, beha- you know, reader behavior is something that is a lot more complex and nor- like normal and like human than <laughs> often they get credit for. You know, like, and I just wish that we could get back to kind of a place where we could trust that and instead like establish relationships um, on a level of here's how people actually think and buy books or would uh, not – or would like to buy books. Obviously, they do it now the way they are being offered to, which is this kind of sectioned off strange way where it has to happen, you know, 10 days before the book publishes or not at all. And um, I don't know. I just think that, you know, here and everywhere else, the answer is flexibility and breathability mm-hmm. in a way that suggests, that gives credit to the person actually putting up the money for it, you know? Historically, 
um, I'm thinking back to like YA crossovers, like before YA was a really, really big market share. Um, even, you know, when, when we were teenagers or even before that, Eric, mm-hmm. a book that was a YA crossover, <laughs> it actually didn't cross over. What happened is that they completely repackaged it. They would do two print runs, yeah. put one yeah. in the YA section and one in the Isn't adult section. And <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> Isn't that's it wild? wild? Yeah. Isn't it wild? It's- and so it's, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I very much prefer a bookstore experience. Like, if I'm going in and I'm I'm not sure what I want, like, a, a bookstore experience where I walk in and there's just a fiction section. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to... With all kinds to, of different stuff on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to, you know, lots of different, like, subcategories. Because what's that? what that's doing is it's giving me an opportunity to select out of discovering new, like, ideas and methods of storytelling and tropes. Like, mm-hmm. it's giving me an opportunity to walk by that section because, like, I don't really, like, I don't really read a ton of that. You know, like, I, I, one thing that I've learned about myself recently is that I absolutely love horror. And I didn't know that because it would always be separated out from the fiction section or the science fiction and fantasy section. I would just walk right by it because I'm like, ooh, you know, like yeah. whatever. Like I don't love, you know, like Stephen King's writing. So I'm just going to like walk right by it. Right. But if it's integrated, it gives the reader an opportunity to expand and explore. And like, when has that ever been a bad thing? Right. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that I think that's a good point. So. Yeah. Well, let's transition right now to our Taloon It May Concern. Yes. I am super in love with this question, so I hope <laughs> you guys find it useful. Taloon It May Concern. I'm about to enter my senior year of college. As a creative writing major, this means I will most likely have to do a senior reading. From what I've observed from upperclassmen, these readings are usually three to five seniors reading 15 minutes worth of their work in either the campus coffee shop, the English department lounge, one of the bigger classrooms with a non-functional fireplace, or the non-functional fireplace is a good detail. I love good non-functional fireplace. I, as someone who has a non-functional I fireplace. I also have a non-functional fireplace. <laughs> okay. um, or the old chapel that is now used as an auditorium for band, orchestra, and choir concerts. No religious services are actually held at the chapel anymore. The readings take place at the end of the spring semester and are open to campus, though it's usually just the other graduating English majors and a few family members who actually attend. Facing the task of putting together my own reading, I'm filled with questions. First and foremost, how do you ensure that there will be more than three people, that more than three people show up? Most importantly, how do you make it not incredibly boring for the audience members? Should there be snacks? If so, what kind? On the more academic side, how do you decide to read? Should I go with one short story for the entire 15 minutes or break it up Break it up with a few shorter flash fiction pieces? Should I read something more literary and risk looking too pretentious or go with something funny and risk realizing my jokes aren't actually funny after all? Is it the best to read first, last, or in the middle? Should I practice my reading voice? How many pages in 15 minutes is 15 minutes of time anyway? Also, what does one wear to a reading anyway? <laughs> Am I overthinking the whole thing and just need to take a chill pill? Any dubious advice would be cre- be appreciated. As people who have been to a lot of readings, I'm sure you have some opinions on what makes for a good event. Best wishes, collegiate concerns. Okay, so there are a lot of questions in here. Yeah. Um, we're going to unify those under just the very simple banner of like how to do a reading how to do a reading and how specifically to kind of prepare for you know this sort of thing and so like 
Laura, mm-hmm. if you were to describe, and I guess like, you know, so we should drill in a little bit. Like, so what they're describing here is like intimate setting, you know, familiar people. Like how, like how do you put on a good event here? Because for yep. me, step one, and I think it's probably step it's one. Is cheese. I was going <laughs> <laughs> to say step one is cheese. Um, so, no, but like the, I think like a good thing, like should there be snacks? So yeah, have snacks. Yes. Get some snacks. Um, I would also say like. Make it an event. Don't make it homework. Um, yeah, exactly. And like, so just like tagging some of the other stuff here. And this is true, I think, for anyone putting together a book event. Like the first thing to do is, you know, get the word out early, you know, like give people time to plan for it, you know. Um, that would be a big step for me, I think. I mean, I would also say, um, yeah, just like I would pick the, like in terms of, it sounds like they're kind of picking a space here too. Mm-hmm. And this, so this gets also into um, reading preferences. And I will say that I like being in tighter spaces for readings, mm. especially because it makes the room feel more full. There's something awkward yeah. about being, like, yeah. especially if you're not, you're not, loving what's being read mm-hmm. to like sit there and to have tons of space between yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. and the you next person space. or you want it to be kind of cozy. you want it yeah. you want it tight so that yeah. you feel as the audience member you feel anonymous and some people might um some people might disagree with that like i know some mm-hmm. people want room to operate be able to move around all that kind of stuff but like if i'm putting on like i'm not that person i'm the person putting on the event i'm trying to create a place that's got people's attention and feels like you're in a room full of energy I would pick – I wouldn't go too big. Like I, I would take the cozy places. Right. Um, and come into the Rocky theme. No, I'm just kidding. Um. <laughs> so this gets in like into a question of how would you – so this is an author mm-hmm. who's preparing to read their work. How would you coach an author before giving a reading? Like she, you know, th- this person's asking all kinds of um, preparatory questions like sh- how should I prepare? What should I read? And all that kind of stuff. Like how would you go about consulting any of your authors giving who's getting ready to do an event? Well, so for me, and this might be kind of not the purpose of a senior reading, but like presumably the idea of doing a reading like this as a graduating creative writing major is to like practice what happens when you're doing readings in real life, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so for me, I think like especially as somebody who listens to audiobooks and that's what she does, for me, it's a lot less interesting to hear somebody read a whole piece or a whole section, um, unless it's poetry, but that's a different thing. Like, it's less interesting for me for that to happen and much more interesting to to hear, like, selections. Like, if you have a longer piece, I would love to hear like a section of that longer piece because one and this again might not necessarily apply if you don't have the work actually published but I don't want to leave the reading feeling like I've gotten gotten it you know I want to leave the reading feeling like oh I discovered somebody really cool and I can't wait to learn more um personally I am also a speaking of kind of like getting getting the getting my um like interest peaked Mm -hmm. i am a really big fan of readings that aren't just getting up there and reading because like you want to talk about that's gonna be right like if i if i'm gonna read if i'm gonna read your work like or listen to you read it i'm gonna like stay at home and not have pants on you know what i mean (laughs) like make it more than that and like that would be like my thing too my like my piece of advice was going to be 
to pick. And I guess I, the caveat here is that it depends on the work. Like you should read your strongest stuff. I think right. is first and foremost. But like, I would pick a section of a longer thing that isn't complete, or mm-hmm. the, the story is complete, but you don't have time to read all of it. Mm-hmm. What I would do is, you know, pick from there, and then don't start from page one. Talk people into it. Like, yes. You know, if you've got like a, you know, if there's, if maybe the best part of this story you're thinking of is like toward the middle, use the first minute or so of your time to, you know, frame it for people. This is a story about X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this when I wrote it. When we come in to the story, our characters are here. Here's the very basics of what you need to know. Right. And then read. And like the idea there is that you're using the fact, like use the fact that you're there as an advantage because like what Laura's describing is exactly right like if I wanted to just hear a recording of someone read I could do that at home yeah like use the fact that you're there that you can kind of breathe into the piece a little bit and like I guess when I have gone to readings and when I've given readings before like the where you really draw people in with using the fact that you're a body in front of them right you know what I mean and so I would make sure you're doing that and like to your point um like if the question is three pieces of flash or one longer thing, I think that I would lean, like, depending, not knowing what any of the pieces look like, I would lean toward the longer thing, if only because of just the way, like, reader attention and arcs work. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're reading three flash pieces, people are rising and falling. Like, you're asking me to invest and then stop, invest and then stop. Like, you know, there's sort of this start and rise and fall to these pieces, whereas you can string tension along for your full time. And as you say leave it in a place where people want more as Mm -hmm. opposed to feeling like they've um, gotten everything they need, you know? It's also worth mentioning that you have the opportunity here to, like, set the stage for branding yourself for your larger work. Yeah. Like, if this is your first reading, like, you have the the opportunity to create a narrative, not just read the work that you're proud of, but to create a narrative around – what will become the mythology of you as the writer. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is like you can pick something based on thematics and Uh you can kind of talk about concepts that you're really, really interested in. And this feeds into like the snacks and even what you wear. You know what I mean? Like if you... um, Like if you are a writer who's really interested in in one sort of relationship or some type of trauma or some sort of like larger thing, Mm -hmm. like what you can do is you can really not just in your little, like in your little talk, you know, set, um, not just set the scene, but really kind of explain why this, why you're drawn to this, you know, the best, I find that like my favorite events aren't even with authors, aren't even necessarily readings. Like they're right, like exactly. when they're in conversation. Exactly. And you get like a snippet of the work and then talking. And here you don't, I mean, it's 15 minutes, not 45. So like right. it's, this is a reading, not a talk. But that doesn't mean like, you know, spend a minute and a half and start framing what you're doing. You right. know, give people like, in terms of bad readings like that I've been to, whether they're students, I've been to a lot of student readings. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones that I think fall a little bit flat are when the person gets up there, doesn't make any eye contact, barely introduces themselves, and just gets, you know, reads through the page yeah. in front of them and then sits down. And what I would say that's going to get to my next, like... Bookend it. Yeah, bookend it. And then, like, um, the like one thing to really do here also um, in terms of preparation is read it aloud 
multiple times before you like more times than you think like practice it like it's a per, like one thing that i think readers or excuse me writers who are now in the function of reading um don't necessarily realize is that this is a performance and that doesn't mean it has to be you know it's theatrical. not like, no it's not theatrical but it is there is some there is a real skill that comes through preparation for um Reading something smoothly, being able to look up from your page, you know, mm-hmm. because you know what, you know, being able to hit the right inflection points, being able to pause where your writing asks for a pause. Like, honestly, it, pause is the hardest thing to do when you're reading is. out loud. It and is. it is In, the scariest thing to sit there and not have anything coming out of your mouth. You're also reading way faster than you think you are, you know, usually I've found. And so, like, have someone, you know, Read it in front of someone one time, but I'm just saying, like, record it and play it back and go, Oh no, that's horrible, and then redo it. Oh no, Eric's pop filter is wrecked. He's <laughs> he sounds like a weird ghost underwater, and now the episode is ruined. Like, you know, sometimes you have to catch that stuff. Um, but like, the point is, treat this as more than just reading aloud things you wrote down. Make Now's this, your chance to be a theater major. This is it. This is your 15, like, take. Control the space, you know what I mean? Like, t- take ownership of it. And um, I think that that, like, putting together that sort of preparatory energy, like, the biggest thing, like, the one fundamental thing for these sorts of readings is if you project the feeling that you are excited to be there and you have taken into account the details and you're ready to share something with someone, like, people are going to feed off that. Mm-hmm. Like, people are there, they're going to feed off confidence, they're going to feed off preparation. Um, and when that happens, it barely matters what you read, you know, because live readings are they're fun, right? Because they're not it's the page. You know, no one's sitting there with their literary critic hat on. <laughs> they're there to be entertained. entertained for a minute. And that's a much easier task if you're giving off that right kind of energy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a much easier task if you're willing to. Like, in a, it, OK, so in writing, you're always taught that your work should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. This is the one instance where we don't want that. It doesn't that. have to. You're there. Yeah. You're, not only exactly. should it not have to, but we don't want it to. Like, as 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 people attending, we are not just readers. We're your audience. Mm-hmm. And we have we have bought into the idea that we are your audience. Yeah. And so if we're treated like an audience and we're given context and we're given stories and we're given discussion and. And, you know, and again, this is 15 minutes, but like that, do you see how that is much more engaging than just getting up and asking somebody to fall into fiction in 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. Like that's not a lot of pages. And that's a much, that's a much bigger emotional ask than it is to like talk and give them a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain. So this, like, it truly, truly is is your opportunity to, to you know, build build that mythology. And and you know, I, I'd like to kind of close this out by talking about um, we talked about a small intimate space, and you know, the, but we haven't touched on how do you get people to come? Well, yep. you get them, you get college kids to go anywhere by offering food. Um, <laughs> that's the truth. Like, I went to a yep. lot of things just because there was pizza. Yeah. Um, but but honestly, like this is another way where you can get people to come if it's not just like come and listen to this reading because like that's not exciting because I don't know what the reading is. And like unless I know you, I probably wouldn't be interested. I'm but going if to you be can reading a story about this, X. yeah, exactly. somebody who's yeah. interested in that but doesn't know you might come. And so that way you can kind of like you can like market yourself. You can kind of see how that 
mythology you're building and that interest and that brand you're building becomes a, a part that will you know help the help the event overall mm-hmm. so and i would recommend to anybody listening go to your local bookstore and kind of ask them about what kind of author events that they have coming in because Truly, like if you are a writer or even like a reader, but really, truly, if you are a writer, you should be going to as many book events as possible because that's the only way that you know how to do it so it doesn't suck. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, they're really fun. I never regret going to an event. Mm. Well, that's not true. (laughs) But that is an opinion of half this podcast. Okay, let's I just let's put it this events. way. I mean, I don't regret any now because I'm old and crotchety and yeah. make sure that we eat Thai food beforehand. Yeah. And so and now it's important that I leave the house sometimes. It is. I can, yeah. It's it's important for you to be socialized, <laughs> just like your puppy. But no, I'm saying like I've been to enough events now that I know what I like and I know what I'm going to enjoy. And so now I don't go to bad bad readings. I don't yep. because I, you know, I do the prep work, but that's just because I figured it out. So I welcome for you to do that and also like get used to it. If you're going to be attending an event, there will be a couple that suck and you will almost die of secondhand embarrassment. Hmm? That's a great note to that's leave you all on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great note to leave all of you on. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our 110th episode of Print Run. Mm. Uh, watch out for our special episodes and we will see you for our free regular episode next week. Bye.